Hi, I'm Associate Pastor Ryan French, and we're so glad you're listening to the Apostolic Tabernacle Church podcast. We hope this teaching and preaching resource is a blessing. We'd love to pray for you. If you'd like to submit a prayer request, you can do so by visiting our website, www.aptabupc.com. Just click the prayer request tab in the menu. You can also support this ministry with an offering at the website as well, or by texting the word GIVE to 678-846-6522. Again, that's 678-846-6522. If you live in the Atlanta area, we'd be honored to see you in one of our services. We'll invite you right into our church family and make you feel right at home. Praise the Lord, everybody. Uh, we wish that you could be in service with us tonight, but we're th- glad that you're joining us virtually on Facebook and through the website and YouTube and all the various places. Thank you so much for being faithful, even when you can't be physically present, being faithful to the house of the Lord. And, uh, and we are praying for those that are sick right now, praying for all of you that God would keep you during this season and uh, and this time of year i don't have a a text that i'm going to begin with but uh, i i'm going to get to a text as we go but i'll give you my title i'm i'm teaching tonight from the subject it's beginning to look a lot like christ it's beginning to look a lot like christ and i'm i'm uh, featuring some thoughts from a recent article at ryanafrench.com and you're welcome to go there and follow along and make notes with it Uh, and I want to uh, take us on a journey through what it means to look like Christ and what it means to have a lifestyle of repentance that leads us to be more and more like the Lord which is our goal to be like the Lord I I love the Christmas season and and I love Christmas music too I'm one of those annoying people who starts listening to Christmas music way too early. And one of my favorite, slightly frivolous Christmas songs is It's Beginning to Look a Lot Like Christmas, penned in 1951 by Meredith Wilson. It's been a holiday staple since its iconic release. And you've probably heard it played many, many times. And at first glance, I do realize it's not the most Christ-centered Christmas song, but It has a catchy melody, and it's family-friendly, and I enjoy it every time I hear it. And just the other day, I I heard it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas in a store shopping with my wife, and it lodged in my brain. It's one of those songs that just gets in there, and it wouldn't let go. And that same night, we were happened to be downtown Atlanta, and we had a few snow dribbles. They they would kind of fall, but when they hit the ground, they would melt, but... Even so, it made a a beautiful Christmas scene. And that song playing in my mind and the snow and all of that, it it just gave me the feeling of Christmas. The song paints a vivid word picture of how stores, streets, hotels, landscapes, and people begin to show the not so subtle signs that Christmas is coming, that people are transforming, places are transforming in preparation and also in anticipation of the Christmas season. Stores glisten, streets glow, kids hope, people's visages visibly change, and winter snow dominates the scenery. 
The atmosphere described in the song is beautiful, happy, transcendent, expected, and surrounded by death. That particular night as the song was playing in my mind, uh, revelation hit me, or epiphany you might say, as it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas jangled around in my mind. I realized that while we're beginning to look like Christ, we are inevitably surrounded by the transformative beauty of death. Winter is the season of the completion of death. Throughout the fall season, leaves struggle to stay alive and vegetation does its best to hold on, but winter finally wins in the end. And old things pass away in preparation for new life. Philosophically speaking, there's a strange perceptual dichotomy at play in wintertime. On the one hand, we can view winter as stark, harsh, and bleak. But on the other hand, glowing lanes, candy canes, church bells, and carolers out in the snow can change our wintry perspective. All of the joy mingled with the austerity of winter might, might seem enigmatic, but it's not because we know the cold will eventually give way to warmth and new life will shoot forth in the springtime. The inevitability of death precedes the miracle of life in the natural order of the universe. The universe's ability to produce new life from death is not an accident. The maker of the universe designed it that way. I love what Psalm 104:19 said. He appointed the moon for seasons. The sun knoweth his going down. God created the universe and he mirrored that same spiritual law of death and life in the hearts of human beings. The invisible maker visibly manifested himself in the form of a man, and he became the ultimate sacrifice for our sins because our sin deserves physical and spiritual death. And because of that reality, Christ willingly died in our place. The invisible maker came and became visible for us so that we could have salvation. I believe the, the cross dis displays a more remarkable perceptual dichotomy than anything else imaginable. Calvary was a gruesome, bloody, agonizing, humiliating scene ending in the unjust execution of a guiltless man. Perhaps there has been no greater miscarriage of justice in the history of the world than the execution of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who did nothing but live a sinless life, loving people, giving to people, healing people, preaching to people, not only offering them hope in this present world, but offering them the greatest hope of all, salvation that reaches into eternity and changes not only people's physical lives, but their spiritual being. And yet humanity nailed him to a tree and killed him. It was a sad sight 
It was a heartbreaking sight. His mother, the Bible describes his mother as she was there watching her own son being executed. His followers wept as they watched a guiltless man suffer on their behalf while soldiers gambled for his garments and people mocked and jeered and made fun of him. The, the tragedy is unmistakable. The sorrow is almost palpable, yet it was the most beautiful sight the world has ever seen because it symbolizes God's profound personal love for us. No greater love hath a man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. And in return, all that Jesus requires of us is our own death, burial, and resurrection. Now, thankfully, we don't have to physically die and physically be buried and physically be resurrected from the grave. Our death, burial, and resurrection are spiritual events made possible by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That's exactly what Peter was trying to say on the day of Pentecost when they said, men and brethren, what must we do? And he responded and said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Peter was describing our spiritual death at repentance, our spiritual burial at baptism, and our spiritual resurrection at the infilling of the Holy Ghost. What an amazing opportunity this is for humanity, all made possible because of a tragedy that was the most beautiful sight the world has ever seen. The Bible repeatedly teaches us that before we can ever have new life in Christ, and one of the great messages of the Bible and the great hopes of Scripture is that we are able to have a new life in Christ. Old things pass away. Just because we may have a heritage of heartbreak and dishonesty and addiction, all of those things can pass away and we can enter into a brand new life in Jesus. But before we can do that, all of the old things, the old man, the old woman must die. Old things, old ways, habits, lifestyles, mindsets, ideas, all of them must pass away. Those old things don't die naturally, so we crucify them with repentance. Look at what Romans 6, 6 says, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, being Jesus, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. And so we brutally nail our sinfully embedded affections and lusts to a cross and allow them to die. 
And God doesn't force us to do this. God will not make us crucify our flesh. God will not force us to climb up Calvary's hill and watch that old man be nailed to a cross. No, no. And our carnal flesh hates the idea of being crucified. And, and there's this constant war between the spirit and the flesh. And so we must repent of our sins. This is the way we crucify our flesh. Repentance is interesting because repentance is the only part of the salvation process that we must do completely alone. No one can repent for you. No one can make you repent. No one can teach you how to say a certain word and, and do it just right. Repentance is something that you must do out of the sincerity of your heart. At baptism, someone else baptizes us in the saving name of Jesus. And we consent to be baptized, certainly, and we participate in the baptism, but we don't perform the baptism. Dead people don't bury themselves because they're dead. Just like when we're filled with the Holy Ghost, which is our spiritual resurrection. We can't fill ourselves with the Holy Ghost. Look at what Acts 11.15 tells us. While, while Peter was speaking, he said, As I began to speak, the Holy Ghost fell on them as on us in the beginning. He was referring to the day of Pentecost when the Holy Ghost was poured out for the very first time. The outpouring of the Holy Ghost is something that we can't force into happening. We can't make God fill us with his spirit. No, God pours out his spirit on us and dwells within us. And once again, in that moment, we are merely participating and consenting to a divine process. But repentance is different. We make the decision to repent. Only we can repent. You can repent by yourself. You can repent in a room full of crowded people. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, no matter how far you've gone, no matter how deep in sin and darkness you are, no matter how hopeless it might seem, you can repent and the light of the gospel will begin to break through the darkness of your life and the gospel will begin the process of transforming you. All of this begins with repentance. Repentance is the gateway that leads to baptism and the infilling of the Holy Ghost. If, if you get baptized without repentance, you're just getting wet. And God will not fill you with his spirit if you have not repented of your sins. I remember many years ago, I was praying with an individual that had been seeking the Holy Ghost for three years. For three years, they had been begging God to fill them with the Holy Ghost. And in that particular series of revival services, that individual came to the altar every single night of revival and asked God to fill them with the Holy Ghost. And, uh, and sometimes when people do that, we assume that because they want the Holy Ghost, they've properly repented of their sins. And I made the mistake of assuming that as well. But finally, after many nights of this person seeking the Holy Ghost and not receiving it, 
I felt like the Lord prompted me to say to them uh, what should have been the obvious thing. I said, now listen, I know that you've heard of repentance, but have you truly repented of your sins? And they said to me, yes, I've repented of my sins. And I felt the Holy Ghost nudge me one more time. And I wanted to make sure that they understood what repentance really is. Repentance is more than just being sorry that you can't do something. Repentance is more than just recognizing that something is wrong. Repentance is even more than recognizing that we are sinners. Repentance is a desire to literally turn away from sin. You've heard this before, no doubt, but that word repent actually is a military term. In some cultures, if, if a general or a sergeant says to soldiers, repent, that means for them to completely turn around and start marching in the opposite direction. So when you repent of your sins, you are literally saying to God, not only am I sorry for my sin, not only do I recognize I'm a sinner, but I've made a decision that I'm I'm going to start walking away from sin and walking towards the Lord. And when you truly make that decision, when you're saying in your heart, Lord, I've determined in my heart that not only am I sorry for my sin, but I'm going to abandon my sin and follow you. This is the symbolism that Jesus was giving when he called Peter, James, and John by the riverside. And he said, I want you to lay down your nets and leave your old life lifestyle. You have things that you're doing. You have ways and habits and you've got it all figured out. But Peter, I want you to leave those nets behind and follow me and become a fisher of men. This is a type and shadow of what it means to repent. When we begin to follow Jesus, we are abandoning our past. We are abandoning old ways and habits and lifestyles. And we're saying, Lord, whatever the cost, whatever it takes, we're Wherever you lead me, I'm going to follow you because I am turning away from my sin. And after giving a little Bible study about what repentance really is, I said to this individual, now, now that we understand what repentance is, can you make a determination in your heart that you're going to turn away from old things and follow the Lord passionately? And I watched as tears began to flow from that person's eyes and we repent together and immediately after repenting the Holy Ghost fell and he began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave the utterance because repentance is the gateway to the outpouring and the infilling of the Holy Ghost when we repent of our sins we are willingly offering our bodies everything about ourselves our mind our our soul we're offering our strength we're offering everything that we have our finances our time our talents we're offering all of that as a living sacrifice and that's not a one-time thing either. Authentic repentance is a commitment to pick up our cross and regularly die to sin.
When Jesus was speaking to his disciples in the crowd and he commanded them to, to pick up their cross daily, he said, I want you to pick up your cross and follow me. Uh, that He wasn't speaking to people who weren't already determined to follow him. He was reminding them that they were going to have to daily pick up the burden of repentance and carry it with them. Why? Because continual death to sin releases joy, abundant life, power, self-control, and authority in Jesus. This is very important because when you repent for the first time, that's going to be far from the last time that you repent of your sins. No, like Paul said, you're going to have to die daily. You're going to have to make a commitment. I'm going to keep this cross with me. And every day when I get up, I'm going to crucify that old man. I'm going to crucify that old sin nature so that I can become more and more and more like Jesus. I want you to look at this powerful verse from Colossians 3, chapter 3. And Paul said this. He said, for ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. That's an amazing little scripture verse and there's a lot packed in there. And what he's literally saying is that just like Jesus was dead in the tomb, so we, because of our connection with Christ, have become dead to sin, to worldly influences, worldly pleasures, and worldly ambition. Or in other words, we are to be to sin and to all of those sinful things as if we were dead. We're not dead. We're alive in Christ Jesus. But when it comes to that old nature and all of the old sinful habits and lifestyles, we are, it's just like we're in the tomb with Jesus. We're dead to those things. And now we are alive to Christ and we walk a new path. But what does it mean, now think with me a moment here, and I'm almost done. What does it mean to be hidden with Christ in God? That one takes a little more thinking. Certainly Paul was alluding to the idea of secrecy and safety in God. Our life and salvation are secure in God as long as we remain dead to sin. But we're not literally hidden from the view of the world. The world can still see us. In fact, the Bible says we are a city that is set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Even Jesus said that we've got to let our light shine for all men to see. But that, that word hidden can also mean in the Greek to be concealed. The implication here is that our life is not understood and it's unknown to the watching world. But these unseen realities will be revealed to the world by God in due time. Let me put it this way. The spiritual death of a sinner produces a saint that is continuously misunderstood by sinners. When you become a saint, and you put off the old man. The world is going to look at you differently because you don't talk like the world. You don't walk like the world. You don't even think like the world any longer. And so this puts us at odds with the world. This is why often the scripture says things like we are strangers and pilgrims in a strange land. It's why the old timers used to write songs like I, I, I'm, just a, I'm just a pilgrim that's passing through. This world is not my home. 
My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue, somewhere outside of this world. Our treasures are laid up. And so we need to be comfortable with the reality that as we begin to look a lot like Christ, we start looking different than the world. We don't dress like the world. We don't wear the attire of the world. We don't wear the clothing of Babylon. We don't wear the, the accruedments of, of Jezebel. No, we, we refrain and abstain from those things because now we are a new creature in Christ Jesus. Everything has changed. Why? Because winter has finally won and it has, it has caused all of the old ways to die. As we begin to look a lot like Christ, which is what we're called to do, the dead weights of sin begin to fall off the branches of our lives. When the leaves of sin are falling one by one, we know that a joyous death is about to take place and winter is coming. Old habits take their last gulps of air. Fear and condemnation lie on their deathbeds. Carnal thinking is being transformed. Sinful, dysfunctional relationships are being severed as the joys of salvation and holiness begin to take root in the midst of the chill. The death is harsh, tear-soaked, unrelenting, yet it's one of the prettiest sights to see because Christ's image is being manifest in our lives. And so I pray to everyone that is listening and watching tonight that this Christmas season, you're beginning to look a lot like Christ. I want to close with a poem. It's really a Christmas reading. I've heard it since I was a child. It's called The Story of the Christmas Guest. And it's adapted by Helen Steiner Rice from an old Christian German legend. And I'm closing. It's a rather lengthy poem, but it's powerful, and it relates to everything that we've, that we've taught on tonight. It says this. It happened one day at the year's white end. Two neighbors called on an old-time friend. They found his shop so meager and mean, made bright with a thousand bows of green. And Conrad was sitting with face ashine when he suddenly stopped as he stitched a twine and said, old friends, at dawn today, when the cock was crowing the night away, the Lord appeared in a dream to me and said, I'm coming, your guest to be. So I've been busy with feet astir, strewing my shop with branches of fir. The table is spread and the kettle is shined, and over the rafters the holly is twined. And now I will wait for my Lord to appear, and listen closely so I will hear. His step as he nears my humble place, and I open the door and look at his face. So his friends went home and left Conrad alone. For this was the happiest day he had known. For long since his family had passed away, and Conrad had spent a sad Christmas day. But he knew with his Lord as his Christmas guest, this Christmas would be the dearest and best. He listened with only joy in his heart, and with every sound he would rise with a start and look for the Lord to be standing there and answer to his earnest prayer. So he ran to the window after hearing a sound, but all that he saw on the snow-covered ground was a shabby beggar whose shoes were torn and all of his clothes were ragged and worn. So Conrad was touched and went to the door and he said, your feet must be frozen and sore. I have some shoes in my shop for you and a coat that will keep you warmer too. 
So with grateful heart, the man went away. But as Conrad noticed the time of day, he wondered what made his dear Lord so late and how much longer he'd have to wait. When he heard a knock, he ran to the door, but it was only a stranger once more, a bent old crone with a shawl of black, a bundle of branches piled on her back. She asked for only a place to rest, but that was reserved for Conrad's great guest. But her voice seemed to plead, don't send me away. Let me rest for a while on Christmas Day. So Conrad brewed her a steaming cup and told her to sit at the table and sup. But after she left, he was filled with dismay, for he saw that the hours were passing away. The Lord had not come as he said he would, and Conrad felt for sure he had misunderstood. Out of the stillness, he heard a cry, please help me and tell me, where am I? He stood disappointed as twice before, but shook off his sadness and went to the door. It was only a child who had wandered away and was lost from her family on Christmas Day. Again, Conrad's heart was heavy and sad, but he knew he should make this little girl glad. So he called her in and wiped her tears and quieted all her childish fears. Then he laid her back and took her home. But as he entered his darkened door, he knew that the Lord was not coming today for the hours of Christmas had passed away. So he went to his room and knelt down to pray. And he said, dear Lord, why did you delay? What kept you from coming to call on me? For I wanted so much your face to see. When soft in the silence, a voice he heard, lift up your head for I kept my word. Three times my shadow crossed your floor. Three times I came to your lonely door. For I was the beggar with bruised cold feet. I was the woman you gave to eat. And I was the child on the homeless street. When we begin to look like Christ, the, the more and more we long to be like him, we're going to reach out to people the way Conrad did in this, in this old German legend. And I pray that we will look like the Lord so that the Lord will visit us. And even when we don't recognize his presence, he will have touched our lives and we will have been true to him. God bless you and Merry Christmas. We love you all in Jesus' name.